0: we generate uh, a neutron beam, which we shoot at our object of interest. And those neutrons interact with atoms inside the the parcel, and then they will generate specific gamma rays. And those gamma rays give us information about the elemental composition of what's inside of the parcel. So we also make an, an image with those neutrons. So we combine image information with spectral information, and that combination is then thrown at the AI to determine exactly what's inside.
1: Hi, my name is Gareth Thomas from Tangible Computing,
2: and I'm Andrew Rutgers' co-host.
1: This is a podcast about where computing meets the real world, from the fast and the complex, like controlling an engine, to the imaging of a patient, or even scheduling an airline. We want to trigger your curiosity by talking to the people behind the scenes of making the modern world happen, deepening your understanding of where computation plays a role in our everyday lives, and motivating you to help engineer a better world. This podcast is powered by Version Bay, a consulting company that offers experienced consultants to professionalize your MATLAB, Simulink, and Python projects, minimizing the risk and quantifying the value in migrating to newer software environments. And now let's find out how software drives the world. Welcome to Tangible Computing, and today we're going to be interviewing and having a discussion with Core Datama, who is the co-founder and managing director of Dynaxian Security. Welcome, Core.
0: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be on your show.
1: We've been trying to get you on for a while, so it's good. I'm very happy to make this a reality, as you have a very interesting story about your company. But before we get into what Dynaxian Security actually does, could you maybe share a fun fact about yourself?
0: Sure. Probably a lot of people know that I'm I'm a runner, but uh, what very few people know that actually only uh, when I turned 50, I ran my first marathon, which was uh, about a month ago.
1: Wow, congratulations. So there's hope for all of us. This is good.
0: Exactly. It doesn't matter how old you are. There are always challenges that you can conquer and you can fulfill.
1: For sure. So, persistency definitely pays off. And if I look at your track record when it comes to LinkedIn, I see that you've created a couple of companies in your uh, career, but the most recent one is uh, Dynaxion Security. Can you maybe tell us a little bit about it and what you guys do?
0: Sure. We're developing a new security scanner based on use of neutrons. Probably most people know that security screening is done almost only with x-rays, but we find another way of uh, doing security screening of parcels, luggage, your suitcases, basically, and then we can determine what the substance is inside. Whereas normally people look at images of these suitcases, we actually can determine the the substance that is inside. And we do this with specific detectors and with AI that interpret the the data from our uh, detectors. So, so
1: maybe just to go a little bit deeper, when you say you create a machine, is this kind of something that would be at an airport, that it goes through all the luggage at an airport would go through? And then as it's going through a conveyor belt of some sort and through your machine, you then can tell exactly what type of contents? And, and what, when you say contents, what are we talking about? Are we looking at drugs versus sugar or, or things of that nature?
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's pretty much what we're trying to do. And of course, the first version of our system, it may not be quick enough to do scan all the suitcases that go around at an airport. But yes, one of the the key features of our system is is that it can not only detect explosives, but it can detect pretty much anything. So we can also look for drugs, but we can also look for counterfeit materials or anything else, basically, tobacco, you you name it, the system is able to uh, identify it. We we also the, call it a substance identification system instead of a screening system. We we really are able to identify substances.
2: What's the basic technology? Is this x X-ray based, similar to a CT scanner, or what? What's the what's the underlying sort of principle?
0: The, the principle is combination, but we generate neutrons uh, a neutron beam which we shoot at our object of interest, and those neutrons interact with atoms inside of the the parcel. And then they will generate specific gamma rays. And those gamma rays give us information about the elemental composition of what's inside of the parcel. So that's the first one. And then the second one is, is what we also do is we make an, an image of those with those neutrons. So we combine image information with spectral information. And that combination is then thrown at the AI that to determine exactly what's inside. So
2: you're you're looking at the position and the pattern of the and the and the spectra of the gamma rays that are coming out. So what energy level they are. nation means that you can figure out what the material the neutrons were uh, scattered uh, off of to create those gamma rays. Correct. course that correct. Yeah,
0: that's completely correct. And we do this uh, not for the we can make the volume uh, where we're looking at. We can make that as small or big as possible. So if if it's needed, we can scan in smaller voxels, as we call them, so that we can separate all the different materials inside of a. So a voxel suitcase. is
2: like a, a pixel, but in three dimensions. So uh, like your screen size, you can you could adjust the resolution, but then you're doing that in three dimensions across the entire bag, for instance. Correct. And are you able to determine? You're able to determine different elements from the gamma ray spectrum. Are you also be able to determine the different molecules? Does it does the gamma ray spectrum change depending on the molecule that it's in?
0: Not really. No, we are looking into that. Whether there are some, there is some additional information. For example, if you have a crystalline structure, you may be able to also say something more about the crystal structure and the atomic, or sorry, in the molecules. But typically uh, what we do is we look at ratios of different elements and that determines uh, the, the, the quality of the system and how it can identify the, uh, the substance. And this just needs a lot of training. So we need a lot of training data for our AI to be able to determine the difference between toothpaste or shower gel or a, a drug. And and I
2: guess for a lot of organic compounds, because it's mostly carbon, oxygen, hydrogen, the ratios of those, you get an enormous range of organic substances, which have different behaviors. And it's important to be able to figure out which one is which. So I guess that's probably where the AI comes in to try and discern that effectively.
0: Yeah. And that's also why we have the additional information from the, if you would have a certain density, for example, combined with a certain gamma ray spectrum, then you will say, okay, then it must be this kind of material. So it's it It's rather complex. And to be honest with you, we don't even know exactly how the AI does it. But in the end, it is able to very accurately identify substances.
1: So, core in your, uh, looking at your LinkedIn profile, it seems that you've had a wide variety of roles going from fundamental research to working larger companies into smaller companies. Can you maybe tell us a little bit more about why this AI is so powerful in the sense that I feel that what makes unique is not per se the AI algorithm, but it's actually the data that you're actually using. Is that correct?
0: Yes, I I would say so. It's always going to be a combination, but we have access to data that no one else can create at this stage. So uh, we, for example, use a specific neutron source, which is based on a particle accelerator. And this particle accelerator is typically you would have a large building to have this particle accelerator, but we are working together with a a partner to develop such a compact particle accelerator that can be used to create the exact number and energy of the neutrons that are required for this application. So effectively, we are creating data that no one else can create at this stage. And that also makes us unique. And then also the AI that is required to interpret this data is also unique because also nobody else has done this before. So in the end, we're going to look at a combination of of hardware that generates this this data. And on the other side, the AI that needs to be developed to interpret the information and classify uh, the objects we're looking at.
1: And maybe just from my understanding, so it, it must be hard for you to create this data. So I'm assuming that your device is not a small little thing that fits in someone's pocket. And then to get real-life data, I'm also assuming it's relatively hard for you to put this on an airport and try it out for a couple of months and, and get the information. How do you actually get this data? Is this on a tent- test bench in your office? Or are there other techniques that you're using to accelerate the development of this AI?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. Obviously, the variety in parcels and suitcases and materials that you will come across is huge. So you would have you need a, a huge data sets to be able to understand uh, and differentiate between the materials. And if you wanted to do this all by measurement, that's just a no go. It's just impossible to take so many measurements, knowing knowingly what's inside. Because even the uh, say two in the same materials, if they are orientated in a different different way, of organized in a different way, that will all give you different uh, spectra. So the the variation is huge, and that also makes uh, different, you have different means to create training data. So what we do is, is we actually simulate this whole setup and do this in so such high detail that within simulations, we can create realistic energy spectra images of substances and, and parcels that, that go through the scanner. And by doing this, and we have servers that do this 24 hours a day, just generating data for us. And of course, we uh, need to validate this data. So we do measurements and we, we work together with research institutes to, to take these measurements, to get this data and then compare it with our simulations. But if the, the simulations, our model has been validated, then we keep continuing creating more and more data for our AI to be trained on. And this is a process that will take uh, still uh, a lot of time, and we're still working on better ways to create this data and also better and faster ways to, to, to interpret the data. But this is uh, in the core of our business, I would almost say. So if you look at Dynexion at this stage, we are focusing more towards a, the data science and the software to interpret it. And on the other hand, all the hardware and development stuff is, is also part of Dynexion. but therefore we also work together with partners.
2: So, you're talking about using an AI to understand simulated data. Now, that's used mm-hmm. quite a bit for uh, self-driving cars, that you simulate what the camera would see and then you're able to drive your virtual car uh, with your automatic control system to, to test it out. So. In that case, it is frequently used, but it seems like the problem you're dealing with, if you're able to simulate the emission spectra of the material that, you are, that you're testing, that then if you can do the reciprocal of that math, then that also provides the interpretation algorithm without needing to use an AI. So it's a first principles up approach as opposed to an AI approach. And so I'm wondering why are you going with the AI approach as opposed to the physics up approach?
0: Yeah, I actually simplified it a little bit because what you described is also what we do. So it's not one or the other. No, we also use this this pretty much, we use a lot of MATLAB code to also generate our data. So it is not solely based on simulation because simulation by the way we use Monte Carlo simulation it still takes a lot of time for the amount of neutrons that we shoot at our object for example I would say if we uh, use 10 million neutrons to be shot at, a, at an object and then have to see what the data that is generated through the the detector response which is all incorporated in this in this huge model and it's is rather complex and also there I think uh, there are very few uh, people in the world that can actually do it to the level that it is accurately enough but uh, this is something that we then do and we find out certain principles because uh, although you would say it is all you can pretty much describe the physics behind it that's the complexity of for example different order of materials or the influence that the environment has on the on the the spectra and the the scattering of the neutrons is, is so complex that that's part you cannot really predict. So you still have to use simulation work to find out the, the, the basics, but once you have found out that there are certain trends, then you can go and do more uh, the physics approach.
1: So you, you mentioned you were saying there MATLAB is part of the tools. Can you maybe elaborate a few more of the, the software stack that you're using behind the scenes?
0: sure the simulation work is all done based on software that is, was already built a long time ago through a high energy physics community and the software is called jant we're at uh, the jn4 at the moment and this software is freely available for people to use and it has all the interactions that you will find uh, in physics basically all the atoms uh, and photons that uh, how they interact and what the resulting reactions are those kind of things are all included in this uh, in this package and on top of that we have developed a couple of uh, additional modules where we um, can also define the detector responses because that is something that is not in in JAND and that is done by ourselves. So that is uh, basically a, a layer on top of the JN software. And also, we have created an import for three D models. So we we can make it quite easy to import all our three D models into the JN software to all have that optimized. But once the data then comes from the simulation, it, it needs to be interpreted. And there we use MATLAB mostly. And MATLAB we use not only to analyze the data, but we also train the AI. All within the MATLAB uh, environment, and we use a lot of the MATLAB toolboxing that are available. But again, um, where needed, we also create new code to to go beyond what is the, the what are the standard tools. If you look at at, at other software that that we then uh, use, uh, for example, for the system, so the let's say the scanner itself, we develop the software mostly in C sharp with our own user interface. We we use certain tooling to to develop the online maybe you've heard of you uh, we use docker to to run our software on so the, quite a few tools that help us in, in developing the software for the hardware system and then, of course, we also have embedded software for the controls. That's pretty much all we do with with software. And uh, actually, the software that I use most is is PowerPoint these days uh, as the CEO, doing a lot of presentations. On the one side, the results from all our uh, testing, and we've gone quite a long way now. There, there is still the, the management side of me requires me to work more in PowerPoint and Word than, uh, than do actually physics and, and uh, science.
1: It's, so it certainly sounds like a quite a complex piece of machinery system that you're going uh, and building which is certainly very impressive so maybe just to clarify and bring it up maybe a a bit to a higher level what size market are we looking at and what are you actually targeting so you only targeting airports or can you maybe elaborate a little bit more of where and how your machine would actually be used
0: Yeah, so there are three main uh, customer groups for us at the moment. I would say the first customer group we already discussed, these are the airports, Uh, airports meet and they are obliged to uh, test all the luggage that goes on board for explosives. So that's their uh, main goal for making sure that uh, all the suitcases and all the luggage that goes into a plane has been screened on explosives. yeah, the added value of our system to that is, is that we can detect it more accurately. We can probably get rid of a lot of uh, control. Uh, people that are operators that that work with the, the X-ray systems, you probably recognize all these people watching this, those screens, seeing all those images go by, and then need to say something about the image whether there is an explosive or not. In some, they typically thirty percent of all the images that they look at, and they are then taken out, and people look in in the suitcase to see whether there is actually something in there, and percent there is of course not an explosive in there but they still need to check it so it's a lot of manual labor and in our system we'll just get rid of that because we don't really need operators our system is automated and it will just say this is an explosive or this was just toothpaste and we don't really have to open the the back anymore the the back can go straight through so that's where you enormously gain in your processes and operation of the, the security screening process
2: that also time tends to be the type of work that is extremely difficult to get people to do effectively because it's very boring staring at screens all the time and it's extremely low incident rate so most screeners in their career will probably never see an actual explosive because it's quite quite rare but they need to keep uh, vigilant for it for hours and hours throughout their their working uh, periods yeah
0: yeah yeah exactly and that's why I would say it's a no-brainer to, to say we need to get uh, to try to replace these people by smart systems, our system. And that's also the one of the business case parts that we, we try to convince our customers with is, is that uh, there is, there's a huge overhead on, on all these people and they need to travel to the airport every day. They need to be screened. They need to be trained and all that kind of stuff and and then not even talk about the fact that these people can also be bright typically these jobs don't really pay very much but if you can just have something go through that could you could earn lots of money with it there is a desperate need to get rid of the human aspect in this process and one thing then the the second customer group that we are talking about is our parcel shipment companies they have the same goal basically they need to ship all these parcels through the air need to be uh, checked also on explosives. And and then an additional uh, downside of that is, is that most of these hubs where these parcels are being then screened, that's all done at night. All these operators, they sit there, they come in at about 10 o'clock in the evening, and then they sit there till about 4 or 5 a.m. And then they just look at these screens and see all these parcels go by. And again, yeah, the hit rate on an actual explosive is very minimal, but they still need to do this hour after hour. Yeah. Th- so th- those are the Two groups where we believe that we can make a big improvement by taking out the human aspect. But on the other hand, we've now only talked about explosives and we can do a lot more than explosives. And as you already said uh, in the beginning, drugs is also probably very important. But then we're talking about a a different group of, of users, which is the customs organizations, and they are particularly interested in what's coming up in the country. They will try to screen as much as possible items that are being brought into the country, which they don't really succeed very well because the increase in parcel shipments has been huge. And we know for a fact that less than 1% of all parcels is being screened at this moment, for example, for drugs. So that, that is the chances of you shipping something that is illegal and is being found by a customs organization is minimal. So it's pretty much done every day. And if you want to tackle that, then you need to have better tools. So for example, our scanner is one of those tools that can actually identify these these explosives, or so these drugs. We find that customs organizations have high interest in also in starting to use our. But before I go any further, I do, I do need to uh, make a disclaimer. So what I'm talking about is something that we will build. So it's not, this system is not available. So if potential customers start to, to call me and say, when can I have a system? Um, that's not going to happen very soon. We still are developing it. The first signs look, look really promising, but there's still a long way to go. So we we are currently in the process where we, we want to build a fully working prototype, and that's going to happen in the next 18 months. And once we have that work, pro- uh, prototype working and then also installed at, for example, at Schiphol or at the customs organization, then we can get real data, and then we can really show that the system is working. And then we need to go through the approval, and that's going to also take quite some time because there are certain guidelines within Europe and America to you have to have your system compliance with. And then if that is uh, then done, it will probably be another two years before we can actually go to the market. Effectively, we're talking about a product that will come to the market in 2025, 20, 26.
2: If I have the product in front of me, what am I looking at? I'm imagining like the old style airport x-ray scanners, but then you're talking about a particle accelerator being attached to it. So what? what how big is it? What does it look like?
0: Yeah, it's. Pretty comparable in size with the the current X-ray systems that are being used for hold luggage. Most people don't really see those systems, but you can find them on the internet and probably about three or four sort of large vendors and all these systems have a approximate size of about two by two by six meters. So these machines are pretty voluminous, but they're somewhere in the basement of an airport and, and they just do their 24 hours uh, per day of scanning of, of suitcases that, that go through. Our system will be slightly different shape because our system will have a T shape. On the one side, you have your particle accelerator shooting with the neutrons, and then you have a perpendicular on that, you have your bags going through the, through the scanner. But the total volume of the system will be comparable with, with those of those X-ray systems. But what I have to say is that because we are using neutrons and uh, neutrons uh, need to be also shielded like x-rays, our our shielding requirements will be a little bit higher than that of x-ray systems. So that will add to the volume and uh, therefore it will probably be a little bit bigger as the average x-ray system.
1: So just for my understanding, Corso, usually when people develop complex systems, there's this trade-off of building something that has exceptionally good quality versus the speed at which it performance versus maybe the cost of how much it costs to manufacture. When you look at this triangle, do you optimize for any particular one? Is is there a focus area or do you have to get all three?
0: That's an excellent question. And initially, we uh, said we want to be much more accurate. And that's also what what our customers look for, accuracy. So we want to make sure that we do not have to uh, get 20 to 30% of all the uh, the object scans to be going to a secondary screening or uh, third-level screening. No, we want to reduce that false alarm rate, as they call it, down to... Uh, single digits but even lower than five percent we think that is uh, from our simulations uh, we would say we we are able to go down to to less than five percent false alarm rate but this comes at a cost if you want to do it very accurately uh, the system will be slower as uh, the standard systems and the typical business case of a scanning system is almost only based on speed of scanning because if you have a slow system, the whole logistic system basically clutters up and you will not be able to fulfill the deadlines you have to, for uh, the slots for airplanes to leave, etc. So the, the, once our system uh, needs to be installed in, in, in these places and you want to use it as a primary screening system, you just have to comply with a high speed of scanning. But the similarly, I always give the example of how X-ray systems work. Um, X-ray systems have been developed over the last 50 years. And the first X-ray scanners, they, that t- they took minutes to make an X-ray image. And by just improving the technology, it became faster and you could get 3D images. And so I see the same process uh, taking place for our neutron scanner. But this also means that initially, we will not be able to use our neutron scanner for uh, first-level screening because we will not be able to go down to that speed. But it does have the opportunity to to do that in the future. And initially, people are already very happy if we can be a secondary screening, because that still saves a lot of time and manual. labor. If we can be a secondary screening, take a little bit more time, but really get that accuracy as, as high as possible. That is the goal at the moment.
2: So what would the typical scanning time for a bag be with the first generation system that you're looking at building?
0: Yeah, we've we've done already some simulation work on it, but it is very difficult to give you a, a, a definite answer there, and uh, I would rather wait a little bit before I throw out a number here. The, the goal is 10 seconds. Um, I doubt whether we're going to make that in the first system, but yes, the, the goal is out there. Let's say 10 seconds is that- amazing.
2: And this is a function of the strength of the neutron beam that you just need some number of neutrons interacting with some number of uh, atoms to make some number of gamma rays and they need to be sufficient that you can then interpret that and so it's a high enough flux from the neutron beam is your limiting factor
0: correct yes and that's one of the reasons why we use this specific neutron source because it, it, it it's able to go up one to two orders of magnitude higher than the let's say traditional neutron sources that are being used in the field um, and the nice thing about our neutron sources is a forward directed beam of neutrons where most of the neutron sources that are typically used uh, they are omnidirectional but we can get it much more in a forward direction. that's also why we have a higher flux at the object. Uh, so that is that's definitely a key factor of the system if you're not able to get the right amount of nutrients in your parcel, then the scanning time will just uh, explode and then it will take minutes for a parcel. And of course, it might still be interesting if it takes minutes, but for a very small uh, subset of all the applications.
2: And then is the, we're generating gamma rays from within the uh, parcel. It, it seems like this isn't something that I would want to go through because the gamma rays would be damaging to me. Is there risks to the material being scanned from the, uh, from the gamma rays and from the neutrons?
0: No, not really. So we did lots of, uh, of already simulation work. Also, some we spoke to specialists. But you can conclude that the risks uh, of operating our system are very similar to those of X-ray systems. So you don't need to worry about it. There is no uh, risk of radiation actually coming out of the system. We make sure that the system complies with all the regulations on that. And if, even if you have your banana put into the scanner, it's not becoming radioactive when it comes out. Also there, don't worry about it. No, The, the radiation times are just way too short to be able to, to, to do anything for this.
2: Because I remember traditionally you had to take your film out of, the, out of your bag before you put the, the rest of the equipment through the x-ray scanner. And as a long time ago. I haven't seen that in, in quite a while. But it, would that also be the case here, that things like film could be uh, impacted?
0: No, actually, film is not something that uh, that would be impacted. Uh, I need to think about it, but I can't really think of any material that would not be able to pass through. Even if you would put an animal or something coincidentally in, in this and maybe th- there are accidents happening, um, it will not die from it. But it will get a radiation dose, which is higher than you would want people to get. But uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely not killing you.
2: So it would be similar to going to a medical CT scanner or something like that, where yes. there's absolutely a risk. It's not something you want to do on a regular basis. It's higher than you would be exposed to otherwise, but it's it's not fatal or anything immediately. Correct. Uh,
1: how did you get started on this? Was this one day that you were traveling at Schiphol and you said, why is this taking so long? I can't take this any longer. I'm going to stop this. I'm going to go and create a company to fix the waiting. Why on haven't they found my drugs?
0: <laughs> Sorry. I, did, I have been stopped by uh, security a few times at airports. And then they st- wanted to look into my bag. And then I thought to myself, what could what could that what could that possibly be interesting in my bag that you you found and then that would come down to uh, a certain material that uh, I used for research, for example, and that just came out black on the screen. So anything that is black on their X-ray screens, then they would say, okay, we need to look this up and see what is inside. And that's also why this high false alarm rate is there because the X-rays are just not capable of of identifying the substances. But no, that was not the reason, to be honest. Um, the, the reason why I started it is after I did my PhD at the University of Southampton, I came back to the Netherlands and I worked at the Delft University for a couple of years doing research on the detection of explosives with neutrons. So it was already a topic uh, a long time ago for me and I, uh, I worked together with the Defense Ministry of Defense on the detection of landmines. And we created a prototype system, and uh, we were really getting quite a, a good step towards clearing landmines with neutron-based techniques. So that was, that's a little bit my background, but I did this for three years, and then I decided that if it, if it would be uh, nice to also go into industry and, and, and see also the other side, as they say, in, in, in science. So I uh, started working for uh, Philips Healthcare in the medical field with x-ray uh, systems, and left the uh, the research behind and that's this was like 20 years ago and uh, then in 2018 was I was looking around a little bit on the internet thinking what would be the next thing I I would be interested in and then I found their high tech XL, a startup accelerator program in Eindhoven, it had sourced some nice technology from CERN to develop new products. And one of those technologies was a, a, a particle accelerator. And I was triggered by it. And I thought to myself, okay, but if we use this as a source for neutrons, we could potentially do something that I worked uh, on uh, 20 years ago. And so I, I got into this and uh, together with a, a team of uh, volunteers, we looked at the business case, we looked at the practicalities, does this actually work? And after a program of, let's say, three months, we came to the conclusion, yes, this could really be something. And then we said, let's start a company and uh, and develop this. So we've had a, quite a roller coaster, but we started a company in March 2019. And then we participated in the opioid detection challenge in America by the Home Department of Homeland Security, and we were immediately invited as one of the finalists. We got 100,000 US dollars as prize money to kickstart our company. And to basically, it was all models at that stage. But we said, OK, no, we want to go from modeling. We want to do, go to a proof of concept. So we tried to get some funding from the Dutch government through a fase financiering. And this money enabled us to actually create our proof of concepts. This, this was a, a very interesting time where we um, built a, a full system with, with, with the, the let's say, the first nutrient source, which was not able to create the amounts of nutrients that we envisaged, but still enough to do our testing with. And in the middle of uh, last, no, sorry, in 2021, so this year, we actually uh, succeeded in in showing that the system is working and we could identify 16 individual materials inside the neutron beam with our trained AI. And this pretty much concluded that the technical aspects of the system actually worked. And so that was great news. And then uh, since we've now have brought this into the, to the attention to the, let's say the world, we're now looking for additional funding to build a complete, fully integrated system. And that's the next step in the company. So
2: you feel like you've got the concept is proven, you've demonstrated, you can pick stuff up and now it's commercialization that you've got to put that into something that you can actually put in an airport and run bags through 24 hours a day in order to then start getting value and preventing explosives and drugs and so forth from getting on airplanes
0: that's it yeah
1: so maybe in in your experience what were some of the challenges in the first years of creating a company so some of our listeners might also be thinking of creating their own company i'd be curious to hear your thoughts of some of the lessons learned that you've picked up throughout your experience looking backwards but also maybe some things which are uh, more forward-looking that you might like to share with our listeners
0: Sure. Yeah. First of all, starting your own business is, on the one side, it's easy. You just go to the KfK and you you, you you get your uh, company registered. So but the
1: Chamber of Commerce, right? The Chamber of Commerce. Yes. Chamber okay. of Commerce. Yes. Sorry.
0: Yeah. And then you just, but the basic for, for starting a company is you have to have a good idea. We, if you don't have a good idea, then it better not start a company that's not worth the effort. But uh, if you have a good idea and you start your company, then almost always uh, the most difficult part is to find some finance to, to kickstart the idea. Of course, there are w- all kinds of ways to, to get funding for it. You can look at friends and family or maybe you saved some money yourself. But in the end, you have to find the money for it. So the, the funding for my uh, first company, it was really in a quite a difficult time. I think it was 2012, 2013, and the economy wasn't going great. And people were not very really eager to, certainly banks were not eager to give you any money. So it was a very hard time to, to, to find money. And, but still, if you have a compelling story and you find the, the, sort of the right people and you can convince them, then you will be able to, to get some funding for your, for your idea. And then basically develop this idea together with your first customer or together with potential. That's I, I think it's a, it's a no-brainer, but you still see a lot of people that develop their idea without actually having a customer in thought. And that's just unbelievable that you would spend so much effort on, on creating a, a product that maybe nobody is waiting for, or at least... You had do not take their their requirements into your first. For my first company, I was lucky to find a, let's say, a visionary customer that within nine months, we had our first product out there and they developed it together with us. They gave us feedback on it. And this really helped us to kickstart my the, the first company. But of course, it was a little bit different than Dynexion because in that, the initial money required was only a few hundred thousand euros, which is probably still doable, but for the next we were actually hitting a very different issue that that for this company, we need significant high amounts of money. And this is real deep tech. And this is something that at least in the Netherlands is very difficult to find. And And there are quite a few examples of companies that just had to go abroad because this kind of money is not available in, in the markets in the Netherlands. And that's a shame because I've, I really would like to become a, a, a Dutch uh, company uh, Dutch-funded company, but uh, unfortunately, that is um, may not be happening because of the yeah the lack of funding for deep tech, uh, which is of course funding it for uh, because there is a high risk. It's you're gonna take uh, it's gonna take a lot of time before you're actually gonna make some money on us. And I, I'm honest, we will only be in the market in, the market in four to five years. So before you earn money, that uh, the return on investment is gonna take eight years possibly. So that is something that that people are worried about. And that's also why I believe that the market is maybe not ready, at least not as interesting for deep tech in the Netherlands than it is maybe in other places.
2: Yeah, that that kind of deep tech funding with there's a lot of technology work, there's a lot of risk, and then it's a long payoff period. That's a very niche part of the venture capital space. Uh, a lot of venture capital is looking towards faster growth and returns. That said, when you get in on that, and if you are really able to build that machine and start scaling that and selling that to a lot of airports, then you have an amazing business and it yeah could probably pay off very well for the investors, but that's down the road.
0: Yeah, no, it's a little bit like I always tell people is we would like to become the ASML of the security business. And that's quite pretentious. And I know it's a tall order, but the business model that we think of is similar. Also, the technology is rather complex, a deep tech technology. But if you look at ASML, they probably spent hundreds of millions of euros for the first system before they started selling. And they were lucky enough that there were certain parties that that enabled this funding. And in our case, yeah, we do not have these capabilities of getting that funding in. And uh, that makes it, of course, pretty tough to to, compi- uh, to continue.
2: And for our listeners who are not located in Eindhoven and may not have heard of ASML, they make the equipment that's used to make chips and they dominate that market. And they're now a, in tens of billions of dollars market value and based in Veldhoven,
1: which is just a suburb of Eindhoven where we are. So, so, so Cor, along those lines, I'm curious to say that you've always got a lot of experience of creating a company, but, uh, and you said you need a good idea, but are there other traits which you think are fundamental to prepare people, maybe to prepare them for the ups and downs because there's the, the dream of creating a company and then you're the master of your own destiny, but uh, it's always sounds more positive than maybe there. What are some of the things that you could share, which would inspire people to go down this route of becoming an entrepreneur?
0: Yeah, there's, there's, there's some, uh, so many learnings I already had. And this is Dinexion is my second startup, so I'm still rather novice. But one of the things that I, I always uh, like to think back is that during my first, we really went through some rough patches that we basically did not have any money in the bank. The customer that we had in our mind suddenly canceled the order because they didn't have a budget this year and they had to postpone it. And, and we were pretty much running so low on cash that couldn't even travel to the customer anymore or whatever and and still you had to do anything the the learning here is uh, you have to be able to deal with stress and and things not always going to go the way you think they will go and and you also have to be lucky sometimes over the, the the first three to four years we were lucky enough to come across a couple of customers that really believed in us and they went on and they did place the order right at the right moment so that we could create some more turnover and be able to, to proceed with. Yeah, it's going to be stressful at, at times. But on the other hand, the reward is also great. And, and I can really personally, I think it has really given me a, a lot of boost and also much more meaning. I have a much more meaningful uh, life. I want to do something for society and make, improve society and help people and when i was working for uh, this large company yeah, it, it it didn't feel that way although you are a little you're just a little piece of the puzzle to to create something for it it was not enough for me so i wanted to to make more impact and that's i think i've been doing in the in, in for the, the the two companies that i've now created and uh, that's also going to to go ahead, i'm going to go ahead and, and and do that also in the future i'm not a person that that, that just wants to earn money because we can Make more food for people to get fat or something that I would never be able to work in such an environment. I want to to do something good for uh, for a sustainable future.
1: So I think it's very interesting the way that you articulated that because uh, circling back to how you start, we started this conversation. Persistence seems to be key, right? So you even yourself say I'm still novice and it's your second company. Persistence is key, uh, and I think that you speak with a tremendous amount of passion is the way you articulate stories. So I think that is also something that I also personally find inspiring when i hear people with so much passion about a particular topic which at the top of my head i wouldn't actually have thought there's so much to it but you're showing me a whole new world so thank you for that but maybe then to wrap up when you wake up in the morning what is the thing that puts the biggest smile on your face
0: oh that's a good question i must say that i'm blessed with really a great family and the fact that both my sons they're still living at home by the way but um getting older but we have a really nice family a family life we that's even more important than the company basically being fit uh, healthy and having being able to to do every day what uh, you like doing that is that's great that keeps you ticking and uh, it doesn't really matter what time you have to wake up for it if, if you are enjoying your work then uh, you will be able to do it um, for a very long period of time. And, I, and that's what I do. I enjoy my uh, my work and, and, and the setting. And, and, that's, and that is every day I wake up with a smile, basically.
1: Fantastic. And for maybe some of our listeners, if they want to reach out to you, what would be the right way to reach out to you?
0: Okay, I would probably say go to our website, send us an email on info at dinexion.nl, and uh, then we'll get back to you.
1: And with that, this is a great place to stop our conversation today. I wanted to thank you for listening to Tangible Computing. While we have your attention, we really want this podcast to trigger your curiosity and motivate you to engineer a better world. So let us know if you have any ideas for future topics or speakers, or even how to make this podcast better. Just send us an email to tangible at tangiblecomputing.com.